Good morning. Numbers chapter 13, verse 1 through 3, 17 through 21, 25 through 33, chapter 14, verse 1 through 4, 20 through 24. The Lord now said to Moses, Send out men to explore the land of Canaan, the land I am giving to the Israelites. Send one leader from each of the twelve ancestral tribes. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He sent out twelve men, all tribal leaders of Israel, from their camp in the wilderness of Paran. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether there are few or many, and whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now, the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There, they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey here is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in it in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of Negev. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it, all the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. Sorry. Damn. Oh. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites rumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taking us plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. The Lord replied, As surely as I live, and as surely as the glory of the Lord shall fill the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, 
shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. The word of the Lord. Well, if you weren't awake before, you are now. All right. So a man goes to the doctor, and the doctor comes into the room and asks, you know, how can I help? What seems to be the trouble? And the man replies, you know, doc, I I really don't know why I'm here, honestly. Uh, There's really nothing you can do at this point. You see, I'm dead. The doctor looks at him very concerned and goes, oh, I'm so sorry. Do you mean to say that you are, you know, you have some sort of terminal illness that you're dying? And the man says, oh, no, 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 nothing like that. It's already happened. I'm already dead, you see. I'm a corpse. Uh, The doctor looks very confused and goes, well, sir, that's that's impossible. You're clearly alive. Uh, Well, I know. I was very surprised too, says the man. But you see, despite what you might think, I am in fact dead. And the doctor insists, no, 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 sir, I'm telling you as a medical professional, you are alive. I promise you, well, sir, I'm sure you are very good at your medical profession, but I promise you in this one instance, you're wrong. I'm in fact dead. The doctor looks exasperated. And then he has a thought and he goes, okay, would you agree with me? Dead people do not have a heartbeat. Yes, the man says, dead people do not have heartbeats. Okay, so for instance, the doctor takes off his stethoscope and he puts it in the man's ears and he puts the stethoscope in on his heart and says, okay, so what do you hear? Well, I hear your heart beating, well, that, which makes sense because you're alive. Right, I am alive. So yes, but I am dead. Well, hold on, hold on. And he takes the stethoscope in and he turns around and puts it on the man's chest and says, now what do you hear? And the man's eyes grow wide and his face drops. And he's like, I can't, I can't believe it. I hear a heartbeat. Right, so what does that tell you, says the doctor. And the man replies, doctor, I never thought in a million years I'd say this, but don't you realize what this means? Dead people can have a heartbeat. (laughs) I know, it's a terrible joke, right? It's an awful, it's a dad joke. I'm a dad, I've got, you know, I got a number of those. Uh, Now here's the question I wanna ask you though. As I was telling you that joke and, and kind of walking you through that scenario, who did you imagine yourself as? The doctor or the patient? I'll confess, I tend to immediately put myself into the role of the doctor, you know, the rational one who sees things as they are, who having to deal with this like lunatic over here. Anybody else like me? Yeah. So here's the thing. Modern science would tell us actually all of us are far more like the patient than the doctor. See, and what I mean by that is as a general rule, human beings do not go out there and objectively look at all of the evidence and arrive at the most logical conclusion. Rather, we go out and find evidence to confirm the belief that we already have. And the term for this is cognitive bias. You guys probably heard this term before floating around on the social internets, okay? Cognitive bias. Now here's the thing. Modern science has been talking about cognitive bias for, I don't know, a couple decades now. But God has been telling us about cognitive bias for thousands of years in his word. And our passage is one of the primary examples. 
So if you haven't been with us, we are in a sermon series in the book of Numbers, and we're calling it Discipleship in the Desert, all right? And what, we, what we've said is that Numbers is all about spiritual formation, and we're not pulling that out of thin air. We're actually getting that from the New Testament. Because what the New Testament writers ought, will, will tell us is that while the book of Numbers is a real history, okay, it is the historical account of the 40 years that Israel spends in the wilderness, it's also a, a picture. It's a, it's a roadmap of the Christian life. Think of it like this. Israel, at this point in history... They were no longer slaves in Egypt. They had been set free. And they had an established relationship with God, right? That happened at Mount Sinai. But they hadn't yet entered the land that God had promised. They had not yet received the fullness of all that God had promised. They were sort of in this limbo, this time in between. Well, in the same way, as Christians, if you are in Christ, you have been set free. You have, you've been set free from slavery to sin and death. You are a new creature in Christ. We confess that every week, right? But, and you're, you have established relationship with him by the application of his Holy Spirit. But Jesus has not yet come again. He is yet to make all things new. We have yet to be freed from the presence of sin and death in the world, right? We're in this time in between, right? We are just like Israel, in the desert. Now, here in Numbers 13, we get a very, very sobering account of the, of the spies that they go and they spy out the land and they come back and then God places this judgment. On, it's on the first generation. So everybody that as an adult that came out of Egypt, has gone through the wilderness, was at Mount Sinai, all of them, God says, are going to die in the desert and it will be their children that inherit the land. Now that seems like a really harsh judgment, doesn't it? Why would God place such a profound judgment on his people? Well, we're actually told. We're actually told by a New Testament writer of the book of Hebrews. So it, the, the, the letter to the Hebrews is in the New Testament. We don't actually know who wrote it. Um, there's some good guesses out there, but the writer uses this account, okay? And tells us that it serves for us as Christians as a warning, as a very, very serious warning. And we might frame the warning like this. It's possible to be in, counted among the people of God in this time, in, here in the wilderness, in this time in between, but not be allowed to enter the land. That... And, you can be, for all intents and purposes, here among the people of God during this time and yet be turned away from the full promises of God at the end. And this is not the only place we get this warning. Jesus himself issues the same warning. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says that on that day, the, the last day, when all of humanity stands before him, many, many people will say to him, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and do many, mighty works in your name and cast out demons in your name? Like, didn't we do all the right things in your name? And Jesus says that he will tell them, truly, I never knew you. Get away from me. That's a really serious warning indeed. And we would be wise to take heed. What is it that prevents the Israelites, and also would prevent us from entering in. Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us, 
And with whom was he, that's God, provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The thing that prevented the first generation from entering the promised land was unbelief. And the thing that will prevent us from entering into the presence of Jesus and the new heavens and new earth will not be the sins in our life. Jesus has already paid for the sins of our life by his blood on the cross. But it will be, could be, our unbelief. So we would be wise to look at this idea of unbelief. Okay, so let's do that together this morning, but we're going to see three things, okay? If you're a note taker, you can write these things down. I want us to see the heart of unbelief. Like, what's, what is it at its core? What is unbelief? The heart of unbelief and then the fruit of unbelief. How does unbelief show up in our life? Okay, the fruit of unbelief. And lastly, we're going to see the antidote of unbelief. Okay, the heart of unbelief, the fruit of unbelief, and the antidote. Okay, all right, so first, the heart of unbelief. So what's, what is unbelief at its core? Well, Numbers 13 doesn't tell us what unbelief is. It shows us, okay? So let's go back to our, our story here. So the people have come up from, you know, through the wilderness, and they've come up to the very southern tip of the promised land. And God tells them, he's like, go, you know, before you go into the land, I want you to send your, these 12 guys to go spy out the land. Now, we need to just make it very clear that this, this is not just any land, Okay, God's not just like, you know, throwing a dart at a map and going, all right, y'all can, y'all go live there. Okay, this is, God has been promising this specific land to his people for generations. God promised it to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And they've, God has said all along, I'm going to give you this land and it's a good land and it's flowing with milk and honey and it's going to be great. And what we heard, I don't know if you guys caught it, but the writer of the Hebrews equates the land. And actually, the writer is not getting this from thin air. The writer is actually getting this from the Psalms, particularly Psalm 95. The land really doesn't just represent place. The land represents rest. And that's not like taking a nap. I mean, it it might include a nap, but it's like that soul rest, that deep, just full body, full soul, full heart, mind, just sense of satisfaction, like, ah, it's over. This toil, the struggle is done. The toil is over. We can relax. Like, have you ever poured your blood, sweat into tears into something like maybe a garden or some sort of project, right? You just like, you're, you just throw everything you have into it and you finally get to the end and it's done and it's, it's kind of everything you hoped it would be and you're just like, yes, ah, right? And that sense of like satisfaction and relaxation just kind of washes over you. Anybody have that? So what the writer of the Hebrews is telling us, what the psalmist is telling us is that when God tells his people, I have this land for you, what he's really saying is he has that feeling times a billion for waiting for us, okay? That's what's being held out here. Now here's the thing, Uh, between the people and the rest are giants. There are people living in the land and God has already told them, look, I'm going to drive them out. I, God, am going to do it. 
okay? And, give, and I've given you this land already. And all you got to do is go in there and I'm going to use you to drive these people out, okay? Now, let me pause for one second. I want to recognize the military conquest of the land of Canaan is kind of a controversial thing in the Bible. It raises a lot of questions for us as modern Western people around things like, is God okay with genocide? Is God like sanctioning the murder of women and children and like, or like sanctioning holy wars, you know, religiously motivated wars, right? And those are all very legitimate questions and they deserve good answers. The problem is the conquest of Canaan takes place in the book of Joshua and we're not there yet. We're still in numbers. So I, and that's really not, answering those questions is really not in the scope of this sermon. So I'm gonna kind of punt that to another time. But if that's a real sticking point for you, if that's one of those like, I don't know if I can get past that, that's okay. Please come talk to one of us. Talk to one of the leaders, like myself, Pastor Eric, one of the, the, uh, the elders. We would love to talk with you about it. We would love to take, maybe take you out to coffee and just help begin to unpack those questions, Okay. All right, back to the sermon. <laughs> All right, so there they are. They, and so God says, okay, before you have to go in there and just and receive what it is I'm about to give you, go take a peek, right? And 12 leaders are chosen. Each, each, somebody from each tribe, right? So everybody gets a representative. And actually even, we didn't read this part, but even Moses gets a representative because Joshua goes as Moses' successor. So everybody gets a representative. Everybody gets to take a peek and they, and they, they go spy out the land. Right? They actually, we did, again, we didn't read this part, but they, it actually maps out. They go from the southern tip, they go all the way to the north, and they come back all the way down. And they get a whole scope of everything that's there. And they come back with this report. And they say, okay, God wasn't kidding. It's a good land. It's got produce, and it's got milk and honey. Now, that's actually, that's, that's like literal. The ancient Palestine was known for two things. It's pasture land, raising cattle where you'd get milk, and it's honey production, it's literally a land flowing with milk and honey, okay? It's a good land. It's everything that in this culture, especially in an agrarian economy, they'd be like, that's a place we want to be. But there are these people and they are very, very large and they've got, they don't have little tiny villages. They have fortified cities and like military defenses, right? They're, they're really dug in deep in this land. Um, and then some of them are giants, now, and again, that's actually all true. The archaeological evidence that we have says that the, the people that were living at this time in history in this land had cities with walls that you could defend with a military army and such things. And some of them were abnormally large. Okay, we have skeletons of like big, big people. You guys remember Goliath from David and Goliath? He was a descendant of these people, okay? He was nine feet tall. These were actual giants. They were big people. Okay, so so far so good. They're just accurately reporting what's there. But then we get this sharp divide, don't we? We get two very different responses that are meant to kind of contrast each other. First, we get Caleb's response. And that all, Joshua gets included in this, but really in our passage, Caleb gets the focus. So Caleb gets the focus and his response is what? He kind of quiets it. Calm down, everybody. Let us go up at once and occupy it for we are well able to overcome it, right? He kind of has the Nike response, like just do it, let's go, 
right? He wants to get in there. He wants to receive what God has promised to give them. And by the way, the name Caleb in Hebrew means faithful, which is exactly what he does, right? He is faithful. However, the other 11, they have a very different response, don't they? They say that ones who have gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. So very different responses. And then those leaders go and they spread a bad report to the people, right? And suddenly everybody's freaking out. And what do they say? Like, we got to go back to Egypt, right? It's that, remember that from last week? There's this theme of like, these people keep seeming to want to go back to slavery. So what is this telling us about unbelief? Well, I think we can see a number of things. One, unbelief is not about evidence. Unbelief is not about evidence. All 12 of these guys have the exact same list of evidence. All right? They were all in Egypt. They all saw the 10 plagues. They all passed through the Red Sea. They were all at Mount Sinai when the presence of God came down on the mountain and it was like a bomb went off, right? Remember that back in Exodus? They've all been eating the manna. They've all been following the glory cloud of God, right, up to this point. And all 12 of them saw the land. They all saw the fruit, the milk, the honey. They all saw the giants and the cities, okay? They saw, they all, they seen the exact same thing, but yet they have radically different uh, responses, okay? So unbelief is not about evidence. Second thing we can notice, unbelief is contagious, did you notice that? That it happens in a group. And actually, that's, that's pretty much always true. Unbelief almost never happens in isolation. It tends to happen in community. Now, we're going to say more about that later on, but just hold on to that, okay? Now, the last thing we're going to see is that unbelief is not doubt, okay? Now, this is really, really important. What is doubt? Doubt is a position of uncertainty, it's, a, it's, I haven't made up my mind yet. I, it, maybe this is true, but what about that? I, I, don't, I don't know, okay? And unbelief in God's word gets treated differently because it's really a universal human experience. We all have doubt at some point because we are all finite, okay? We can't know everything, We don't know everything. And so at some point, you have to trust. You have to exercise faith in something or someone that is outside of yourself. Let me say that again. We are all, regardless of what you say you believe about whether you say you're a religious person or not, we all are exercising faith in something or someone outside of us. Okay, and because there are conflicting messages out there, that will raise doubts. So the biblical question really is not, do you have doubts? But really the biblical question is, what do you do with your doubts? The, God's word in multiple places would encourage us, bring your doubts to God. Come and wrestle with him with your doubts. We see that displayed in the Psalms beautifully. But the other option, the negative option, is we let our doubts lead us into unbelief. And that's exactly what what these leaders do, right? Look at what they say. We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. That's not a question. They've already decided. I'm dead, doctor. 
right? There's, they're not, it's not up for debate. They've made a conclusion. They've, tra- they've, tr- they've transgressed doubt into unbelief. So really what we're seeing here pictured for us is that unbelief in the biblical sense is not the absence of belief. Actually, that's not really possible. It's rather, it's a negative belief. And in particular, it's a negative belief about God. It's, it's the belief that says, God's not really there. Now, I'm sure many of us, when I said unbelief, you probably immediately jumped to atheism. You know, maybe like really committed, kind of militant atheists, like a, like a Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens type, you know, the people that go out there and they give talks on God decidedly does not exist, right? Like those kinds of guys. And while the term probably does include them, that's really not the focus. The focus is actually religious unbelief. Really, the Israelites are not questioning whether or not God exists. They are, they, what they do not believe is that God is there for them. It's a disbelief in the character and the promises of God. Really, we could say unbelief says God is not there for me. And that can look very, very religious, right? I mean, think about up until this point, the Israelites, they've been kind of doing everything God has told them to do, right? Do you guys remember uh, like, like earlier in the series, we had this picture of the camp, right? And at the center, these are all the tribes. And right at the center is the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the, the temple tent where the presence of God is supposed to be. Well, they've been organizing their camp just like that. And God told them, you know, when, the glory, when my glory cloud lifts up, you follow me. And then when I stop, you stop. And they've been doing that. And presumably, they've also been doing all of the sacrifices that God told them to do at Mount Sinai, right? We saw that back in Le- when we studied Leviticus. So they're, they're doing externally all of the things that God has told them to do up to this point. But while God may occupy the center of the camp, he doesn't occupy the center of their hearts, and they don't trust him, and they don't rely on him. And the same is true, can be true for us. You can be, and this is what Jesus criticized the Pharisees for, you can be a very externally religious person. You can come here every week. You can read your Bible. You can pray. You can even be in part of a community group. You can memorize scripture. You can, have, you can know all of the right theological terms, right? Like justification by faith alone and sanctification and atonement and, right? And you can recite the Apostles' Creed and all of those things. And yet you're doing all of those things not from a posture of trust and love for God, but from a posture of unbelief. Here's the question though. How do you know? How do you know someone is religiously unbelieving or Believing. Well, that actually brings us to our second point. We just saw the heart of unbelief. Unbelief is the negative belief. God is not really there for me. But that brings us to the fruit of unbelief. How do you know, right? Because unbelief, that, I mean, belief, any belief exists in here, right? You can't see it. You can't touch it. You can't poke it. It's, it's invisible. And that Bible says that only God sees the heart, Right? So how do you know? Well, Jesus said some things that are going to help us out. He said, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. All right, something else he said. 
He said, for out of the abundance of the heart, like the overflow, the mouth speaks. So what is he saying? Well, he's saying that what's inside has a way of getting outside, all right? If I can use this image, if I had like a, you know, like a bottle, right? And I went like, like this, right? I shook it around, ah! What would happen? What would happen? Anybody? Anybody? I think, I, did somebody just say, depends on what's in the bottle? That's exactly right. That's the right answer. It depends on what's in the bottle. If there's nothing in the bottle, I just look silly, right? If there's water, some of us get wet. If there's battery acid, well, this is really going to change the flow of the service, isn't it? Okay? What's, but whatever it is, when stress, when, when difficulty, when pressure is applied, what's inside has a way of coming out, right? So let's look at the Israelites. What is it that shakes their bottle? What's the thing that like pressures them, right? Well, I think we could summarize it with this word, conflict. Now they were facing a literal military conflict and I'm not trying to diminish that. Okay, war is scary. Okay, but they're facing this conflict with uh, other people. Shakes the bottle. What comes out? Fear, terror, despair. Did you guys hear the despair? Why did God bring us here to kill us? And then what do they do? In order to protect themselves, they reach for the only thing they know, slavery, right? They abandon God, abandon his promises, abandon his way, his will for them, and they go back to the one thing that feels safe. Better the slavery that I know than to risk doing what this God is telling me to do, right? And the same is true for us. Now, lots of things can shake your bottle, okay? Lots of things can bring what's inside out, you know, like when our money gets threatened or our comfort gets threatened or just, you know, all kinds of things. But I think one of the primary places that our bottles get shook, if you will, that that pressure gets applied is conflict, conflict with other people. Right? When that happens, when either conflict arises or potentially arises, what comes out of you? Right? Very often when unbelief is, uh, is operating up underneath the surface, we, what we do is we grab for what we know in order to protect ourselves. Now this kind of connects back to what Eric talked about last week. Remember we talked about we all grew up in families, and we all, to some degree, experienced some form of trauma? Well, in the context of when, when, when you're growing up in your family and you get hurt, you learn how to survive. When you're a slave in Egypt, you just learn how to get by. You learn coping mechanisms. And when the stress is applied, what feels familiar is what you grab for. Because it feels safe, even though it's slavery. So think about it. That, that could look like a lot of different things. Maybe when conflict arises, you're the person, 
you don't get scared like the Israelites. You're ready for a fight. You get angry. You're right. You start calling names. You accuse, you attack. You're ready to bully somebody and intimidate them until they bend to your will because that worked in your family system. Or maybe it looks very passive aggressive. You're not going to get angry. You're just going to get icy and cold. And maybe you slip in a little snarky remark. You're just like your father. Right? Could look like that. Maybe it looks like complete and total conflict avoidance. Right? Conflict comes up and suddenly you're out the door. Now, I am not accusing anybody in this room of this. I'm not thinking of anybody specifically. But it is a very, very common occurrence in places like St. Louis, where there are a lot of churches over the, everywhere, that people will bounce from church to church to church to church to church to church because as soon as conflict arises, they're out. Oh, oop, I'm out. Nope, sorry. Can't handle this. I'm not saying that's the only reason people have to change churches, but it's really common in places like St. Louis. Maybe it looks something like you go deer in headlights. You just freeze. And you kind of wait until the danger passes. Even though there are people maybe getting hurt and could use your advocacy. You just, how about that blues game? <laughs> right? Whatever it is. And again, that's, that's not even the complete list. We could go on and on and on and on and on. Here's the point. All of those behaviors, all of those responses to conflict are all about protecting yourself, which is really a form of fear. And what the Apostle John tells us is that fear is antithetical to love. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear, is what he tells us. And Jesus said the sum, that what, is the, what is the, if you're going to summarize the law of God, what is it? Love God with everything you have and everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself. So when we default to self-protective patterns, even if they look polite on the outside, they are not motivated by love and so it is sin. And it actually hurts people. And if, if you really ask the people that are close in relationship to you what happens to you when you go experience conflict and how that affects them, you'll find out it hurts now, another side. I just want to be very, very clear. Some of you might hear me say, oh, if you're in an abusive relationship, you need to stay in it because that's the most loving thing to do. I am not saying that. In fact, sometimes the most loving thing to do is put up a very strict boundary with somebody. Jesus did it all the time. And sometimes you need to lovingly say, I can't let you continue sinning against me like that. Okay? And actually staying in that relationship is, a, is that grab for safety, self-protective and safety because I'm too scared to feel alone, abandoned, unlovable. And so I'd rather stick with the slavery that I know than trust that God is the better relationship that I, that I have, that I need, and he will provide something better for me. Okay? I think, but there's the point, right? When conflict comes up, what comes out? We've seen the heart of unbelief, which is 
a negative belief about God, that God is not really there for me. And we've seen the fruit of unbelief, that when our bottle is shaken, when conflict arises, we abandon God and his ways and his will for us. And we return to what feels safe, even though what feels safe is actually slavery. So what do we do, right? We've gotten to our third point, the antidote. I'm, hope, I'm assuming at this point all of us are like, oh, I actually have a lot more unbelief than I thought I did. Yeah, me too. How do, what do we do about this, right? Because we clearly, it's something we all struggle with on some level, right? Well, thankfully, praise God, we don't get just one response, right? We don't just get the unfaithful response, the unbelieving response. We also get Caleb's response. Why does Caleb, when, when the bottle gets shaken and the, and the conflict arises, why is that what comes out of him? Courage, joy. He's ready and eager to receive what God has for him. Why is that what, what comes out? Well, God says, because he has a different spirit and he has followed me fully. So Caleb has a different spirit. What does that mean? Well, that word spirit in Hebrew is the word ruach. Isn't that a great Hebrew word? Ruach. It's got that nice guttural sound. Now that word can mean, you know, it's got a kind of a wide range of meaning. It can mean spirit or soul. It can mean breath, wind. It can also mean like your animating life force or like your mindset. I think the best way I know how to kind of summarize it is your ruach is like the immaterial you. It's the kind of person you are. So what God is telling us in Numbers is that in order to deal with the unbelief in our hearts, we need to be different people entirely. We need a different spirit. So go out there and change who you are completely. Let's pray. Just kidding. (laughs) How do you completely change who you are? How does that happen? Well, I mean, doesn't it usually take some sort of life-altering experience, doesn't it? Like, you know, you, you meet somebody and they're like, they've gone through something huge, like just totally earth shattering. And it's like, wow, they have changed, right? But some of those experiences can make, give you a spirit that's even less faithful than Caleb's. Much, you know, how do, how do you know? What kind of experience do you need to have the spirit that Caleb had to be that kind of person? Well, do you know what tribe Caleb was the leader of? Judah the kingly tribe, and his descendants, God said, will possess the land. And one of Caleb's descendants, faithful Caleb, was infinitely more faithful than Caleb could ever be. And he came, and never once did he doubt, never once did he ever exercise any unbelief, was there ever a drop of unbelief in his heart? But every breath that he took was a breath breathed out of love. Love for God and love for the people around him. And that love took him into the ultimate conflict. Jesus Christ faced a giant that none of us could face. The giant of God's wrath against our sin. And that's a conflict that if we had stepped into, it would have been our undoing. But Jesus Christ Christ did not run away from it. 
but he stepped into it. And on the cross, Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God Almighty for our sins and the evil of humanity. And after he had done, waged that war, right before he breathed his last, what did he say? It's finished. The thing that stands between us and the rest that God has promised has been dealt with. And then he rose up from the dead on the third day. He ascended to heaven and he gave us what? His spirit, not just any spirit, but the spirit, the spirit of God, the the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And that spirit, we are told, is a spirit that is not sending us back to a uh, a spirit of uh, making us slaves to fear, but rather it's a spirit of power. Friends, do you want more power in your life? Do you want to be a person who is not motivated by self-protective fear, but rather motivated by love? Love that springs from belief that God is for me. His promises are true and what he says cannot fail. Then you need the Holy Spirit. And good news, you can have the Holy Spirit. All you gotta do is ask. Just ask. Jesus already beat the giant. The spirit that you need, that I need, is already ours. So what do we do with this? Let me give you something to kind of walk away with. If you're here and you cannot call yourself a Christian, you, you just either, you're exploring faith, you're re-exploring faith, you're, you, know, you're, you just know like, I don't know if I can put that label on myself yet. Here's what I would say to you. There is no such thing as the absence of belief. You are trusting in someone or something to give you rest. What is it? Who is it? And here's another thing. Let's go back to that idea that unbelief is contagious. Odds are, if you are a person who does not believe, who says, I don't know if I can buy into those things, it's probably because something that a Christian, maybe a Christian leader, did or said to you. But notice, what that when, the, when those leaders, when they went back to the people, it says they spread a bad report. That word in Hebrew could be translated slander. These men slandered God's land and thereby slandered God, which is a kind of lying. Have you ever considered the possibility that the person that you, are, that you would say, like, I don't know if I can believe what God says because of what that person said. Could you, have you ever considered the possibility they were lying to you? Don't. Let someone else's unbelief lead you into unbelief. Go to the source. Go to, bring your doubts to God. Okay? Now, what about the rest of us? If you're here and you would call yourself a Christian, well, you know, here's, here's let me go back to what the, the writer of the Hebrews says, right? What, what, do we, what do we need to do? Well, the writer says this, pay attention, brothers and sisters, That word brothers means brothers and sisters. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Pay attention. Have you ever even thought about what happens to you when conflict arises? What comes out of you? Are you willing to look at that? 
right? Are, are you willing? And, and if there is a pattern of like, you know, pretty consistently, every time stress comes into my life, every time conflict arises, what comes out of me is self-protective fear and abandoning of what God's ways. And it doesn't look anything like Jesus. That's a red light. Pay attention to that. Because that unbelief, if unchecked, undealt with, if it festers and grows inside of you, it is very possible that you will stand before Jesus one day and he will look at you and say, get away from me. And it would be very unloving of me to let any of you walk out of here without knowing that. Don't let that be you. But rather, so how do we address that unbelief when it does crop up? Well, the writer goes on to say, but exhort one another. That word exhort means like we speak into each other's lives. Let me ask you a question. Does anybody have access to and the right to tell you you're wrong? Does anybody in your life, maybe here in your community group or or, a spiritual leader of some kind, does anybody who has some spiritual maturity, I'm not saying anybody, just you should give any, everybody access to your inner parts of your life. No, don't do that. But is there somebody in your life that you trust who has the maturity level to say, I think you're operating out of unbelief. Brother or sister, that's sin. You shouldn't do that. If you don't have someone like that, that's a red flag. We need that. We need each other in the same way unbelief happens in community, belief happens in community. We need each other. Give one another access and the right to say, you're wrong. And, if, and look, here's the deal. When you do, because you will, encounter those unbelieving patterns in your life, when those, those giants, internal giants pop up, right, that have like built their little fortified cities in your heart that says, I can't trust God. You don't have to be afraid because you already have the spirit of Caleb inside of you who can, is way stronger than those giants could ever be, okay? He is well able to overcome it. He has and he will. And you know what the result is when you let him do that? Rest. Don't you want that? I do. Let's pray. Father, I believe. Help my unbelief. Father, we as your people, we give you permission to send your spirit into the dark corners of our hearts where unbelief has built a fortress, has built a stronghold, and has said, no, I don't trust God with this thing or with this relationship, Lord. And we, get, we ask, we plead with you, Father, in the name of Jesus, that you would tear them down so that we could finally experience the rest that you've promised and the world would see a community that is shaped by love and trust in you and your goodness and your promises for your glory's sake, Lord. We love you. We praise you. We thank you that that is not something that we mustered up on our own, but it is a gift from you and we just receive it. Help us to do that today and every day until you come again, Lord Jesus. And I pray these things in your name. Amen.